Today, I have the pleasure of speaking to Harris Kupperman, CIO of Praetorian Capital. Harris, great to have you uh, on Forward Guidance. Hey, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. You had a tweet about the pain, uh, a, a pain trade. Tell us why we are in a pain trade and specifically the dynamics that a lot of hedge fund managers like you are encountering where they have these tremendous gains throughout the year and, and the dynamics that plays. So this reminds me a lot of 2018, you know, and, you know, a lot of my friends are having just huge years this year. It's been a really good year. A lot of good directional trades, uh, you know, anyone who's in energy, anyone who's in small cap value, you know, guys are just killing it. And in our business, you know, management fee is nice, but everyone shows up to work because they want the incentive allocation and uh, you get paid based on performance. And guys are looking at uh, the volatility right now. They're looking at what's happening with the headwinds. You know, uh, nothing's really going right in the global economy. Uh, you get headwinds. You know, uh, Jay Powell has told you that he's, you know, going to be against you. He's raising rates. Uh, you got this Omicron thing floating around. You got you know, lockdowns. You got uh, you know, China slowing down because Xi doesn't really have a plan. Uh, that's hitting commodities. You have all these things kind of going. And guys are looking at their year and they're saying, there's 30 days left. Maybe I should just bucket and you know, lock in my gain and you know, go off to the Caribbean and enjoy it. And uh, how can you blame them? It's been such a good year for so many people. And so on days like yesterday, when it starts fading a little, you know, that emotion of let's lock it in and come back in January, and it kind of just like picks up again. And, you know, in two weeks, it's going to get super thin. Everyone's taken off for the holidays. You're not going to be able to execute early. There's no incremental buyer. So it starts rolling. You know, it starts really rolling because who's going to show up uh, last week of December and say, I'm putting new money to work? I mean, no, no one's around. And so guys have to make a decision the next week or two what they want to do. And, you know, I think it's why we saw yesterday uh, on the way down, you know, the move just started accelerating and snowballing. Because a lot of my friends are saying, okay, you know, I'm, I'm up, you know, 100, 200% this year. Like, let's just make sure I get paid. Uh, especially because a lot, for a lot of people, this is the first really big year they've had. Uh, you know, a lot of my friends uh, weren't riding tech frauds for the last five years. So this is the first good one. So I, I understand why these moves to the downside again kind of accentuated. To what degree do you think that uh, quantitative tightening, or actually I should say uh, balance sheet tapering and the prospect of rate hikes, is a true threat to financial markets, or is it only somewhat of a threat because people think it's a threat? Well, I mean, it's a true threat. Um, you know, inflation, they say it's six or seven. I mean, I don't believe the government numbers. I mean, if things were only up six, uh, I just bought lunch. It's, it's not up six from last year. I, I can tell you that. <laughs> um, you know, no, I, I think uh, you have real double-digit inflation right now, and the Fed's uh, a thousand bits behind. I mean, Fed funds should probably be 500 bips right now. Maybe it's a thousand even is the right number. And these morons are still printing money. It's, uh, they're so far behind. But the problem, and it's a big problem, is you know, we're in day like 10 of the taper, okay? And uh, you know, ARC's collapsing, all the frauds are collapsing, the Ponzi sector went no bid. Um, I mean, the, the whole economy, the whole financial system is built on a hoax and uh, it's built on liquidity. And I mean, they, they did a a week or a week and a half of taper and it's all falling apart already. And so they're in a bad spot because they really should be taking rates up a few hundred bips from here and they can't because it'll blow the thing up. At the same time, you know, uh, inflation is going to keep accelerating. Uh, and you know, oil's down uh, this week, uh, it's down 20 bucks, but um, I think it's going to just keep going higher. And you know, the federal reserve has nothing to do with the price of oil, but they're going to be constantly forced to react to the price of oil, just like they'll be forced to react to supply chain bottlenecks and also to other things that they have really no control over. You know, the Federal Reserve, they have two knobs. They can uh, QE or QT, and then they can go out there and raise or lower rates. And neither of those really are going to do much. You know, they're two knobs. It's not going to do much to, you know, price of oil and all the inputs that are driving this inflation. And they're going to just get further and further behind. And eventually, I think they're going to be forced to react and <laughs> the equity markets will probably have a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're having something of a heart attack, or maybe I should say a few heart palpitations over the past week. A lot of your colleagues are pulling their hair out, wor you know, worried, because for the reasons you said, you, uh, Cuppy, are made of stronger stuff. You're, you're not selling down a lot of positions or, or you know, definitely not shorting anything. You're holding firm. Can you tell us about why, why, uh, why you're doing that? 
Well, I, I degrossed a few months ago. I mean, part of uh, making money at this game is looking forward a few steps. And, you know, I've, I've taken my exposure down all throughout the year. You know, we're still a little bit uh, over 100% gross, but I've been taking it down uh, all, all year long. You know, I'm in lower beta stuff. Uh, look, I had a bad week. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It kind of sucked. <laughs> but, you know, I've had a great year. And, you know, I was kind of unch for the month of November, so I'm not really crying. And, um, you know, uh, it's part of the game. You, ha you have to understand, if you're going to have big years, and that's the goal of my fund, you got to accept that there's going to be some volatility. And volatility, you don't know when, you can't really time it, but you accept it's going to happen. And it's just part of the game. And it happened this week. And I don't think it's done. It's probably going to stay volatile. So you, you, you uh, degrossed, you cut some of your positions, but you really have st stuck with your allocation to what you call uh, Project Zimbabwe. Uh, you know, Zimbabwe historically has had you know, extreme levels of, of inflation. Uh, I don't know to what degree you're being tongue-in-cheek because you know, we've had 6.2% uh, on the CPI. With Zimbabwe, you, you know, that level of inflation is like Weimar levels where you have wheelbarrows full of cash, you have the trillion-dollar bills. Uh, I, I take it that you don't take, think that there will be a trillion-dollar U.S. bill anytime soon, but can you just uh, take us, you know, why do you think you will continue to see extremely high inflation and why uh, are the assets that you have invested in, do you think that they will be buoyed by this uh, high inflation? environment so we're basically long inflation my fund uh if you look uh the federal reserve like i just said they they did a little bit of taper and the whole thing got wobbly you know they'll do another round of taper and another and the, the, the whole thing will implode um and that's not good for uh democracy you know because the voters will complain just like the voters complaining about inflation right now you know you're kind of trapped in two places right now everyone's yelling at jpow about the inflation and in a few months, they'll be young out of pay about the stock market crash. Uh, but the big picture is they're going to keep printing money. They have no choice. They're trapped. And you know, they can either crash the market or they could you know, have a crack up to the upside. I think that's what they're going to do. Uh, at the fiscal side, they've gone totally insane. Uh, you know, they're, they're printing, they're basically handing money out, stimmies and everything. And you know, this sort of stuff, it takes a while to filter through the economy. And it's now filtering through the economy. They've pushed demand in crazy places. And... You know, it's all just kind of lifting up. Uh, I mean, name me an asset that is up like 50% this year. Bonds. Well, <laughs> bonds are fucked. <laughs> but um, like it's all going up. And I, I think that, you know, Project Zimbabwe is a bit tongue-in-cheek, I get it. But I think we'll do Zimbabwe light. And maybe we're not going to do like a 1,000% inflation, but why can't we do, you know, 50 or 100? I mean, we're already at like teens. Um, and I think there'll be moments of terror along the way where governments uh, kind of realize that they're overstimulating. They pull back a little like we just did right now. And you see fiscal and monetary are both kind of taking a pause right now. And then uh, the market will get wobbly and everyone will panic because you know, you're on a two-year election cycle and they'll print a bunch more money and spend it again. And so I think, you know, if you're running a portfolio, you want to be maxed out long, you want to be structured in a way that... If there's a down 20, it's not going to take you out of the game. And, you know, getting taken out of the game, you don't get a margin call, you don't get a song at the bottom, you don't your LPs redeeming you, you, you want to stay at max long. And so uh, you, you structure your portfolio in a way that you can remain max long and live through uh, pullbacks. I mean, you know, look at my portfolio. I mean, we're, we're an energy fund, basically. Uh, the price of oil just dropped 20 bucks in a week. It, it sucked, but... It wasn't that bad, you know, because the way that the portfolio is structured, we're, we're mostly using out-of-the-money calls to express the long view. So the overall, you know, delta on those calls just isn't that high. So when it goes against us, it doesn't kill, you know, and it's just a better way to do it. I'm, I'm not getting a margin call. I'm not getting pushed out at the bottom here. I actually have the flexibility to add and I have been adding. Um, and, you know, I, I just think conceptually the cheapest assets are right tail volatility, and I don't think people own enough of it. Yeah, you said you said you're basically an energy fund at this point. A, a lot of your uh, inflationary thesis, uh, you invested in oil, not oil drillers, not oil leasers, but oil futures. You know, is uh, in WTI, Brent, and the uh, the futures curve. So specifically, when I think you you owned uh, you know option futures and then f options on future uh, futures of crude oil in 2023, 24, 2025. So I hear what you're saying about the delta because you know, the fact that uh, oil goes down a little bit or a ton here doesn't mean that it goes down so far out um, in, in, the, in the future. Uh, can you talk about 
number one, well, for, yeah, first, first tell me why oil and not oil drillers? Well, so I own some Valeras too, but uh, I, I don't like owning the producers. I, I mean, I'm not a geologist and I don't understand basin economics and full cycle economics. And I mean, the people who think they understand seem to get it wrong mostly. <laughs> um, yeah, what I've seen is that in these uh, cycles, you don't actually get leverage to the commodity. That's all kind of just something that stock market uh, promoters talk about. If you want leverage, just go buy futures. They're pure leverage and it's cleaner. You don't have, you know, Biden going out there and canceling a pipeline or canceling your permits or, you know, Colorado canceling your, you know, acreage or there's all these weird esoteric risks you're taking. And I want to be long oil. I don't want to be taking funny risks. I don't really understand. Uh, I mean, it's just the wrong way to play it for me. And besides, I mean, you have so much uh, upside torque. Uh, you know, about four months ago, uh, I put on a, a call spread in uh, the, t the December 23 uh, uh, oil futures. I put on the 90 by 100 call spread. It cost me 60 cents. Uh, you know, if oil was above 100 in December of 23, I get paid $10 back. It's a 15 bagger. Um, I mean, how many stocks are going to be a 15 bagger if oil goes to 100? I mean, oil was 85 uh, two weeks ago. Like, I, I, I just don't see a lot of these things being 15 baggers. But here I am, uh, you know, taking a smallish risk. Uh, you know, it's sixty cents times a few thousand of these things. But um, you get paid out um, fifteen times. It's just a better trade. It's a better directional trade. You know, I have inflation on my side. I have the government screwing everything up, which you can count on. Which is, you know, I want to be long government stupidity and corruption and incompetence. Uh, I, I just think it's a better trade. And, you know, it's just like uh, I went out there and bought the December uh, 25s, I bought the 100s. I mean, I, I own a bunch of strikes. I pretty much own all of them. <laughs> but, I mean, the 100s, they cost me two bucks. Um, you know, if I'm right about Project Zimbabwe, I mean, why can't oil be 500? I mean, why can't, you know, I make 400 on two? I mean, that's a 200 bagger. Like, uh, between money printing and them screwing up the ability to produce oil, I mean, anything's possible. We're looking four years out. Like, like no one can predict four years out. I mean, I can be totally wrong also. Uh, most likely they go in the money, though. It's just a question of how much they go in the money. You know, in terms of why I chose oil versus gold or some other product, um, I just used my inherent skepticism of the government and said that much like they're in the market actively manipulating interest rates right now and you know, manipulating FX rates to keep volatility low, they'll go out there and they'll manipulate the price of gold, which they have, uh, they got caught doing it. Uh, they'll go out there and play with pretty much any product. And you know, they're gonna wanna keep it kind of range bound because it shows signs of inflation. Uh, the thing is that oil is physical settled. Uh, they can't play with it. I mean. Biden's already dumped 50 million barrels. It's going to run out eventually. So they, they can't hold it down indefinitely by selling futures because people ask for delivery. And I, I just took the feeling that they'll keep stimulating until they break something. And, you know, everyone can say, you know, the, this inflation. I and mean, my mom called me up last week and asked why the price of broccoli went up. It, like, people know it's inflation. But, you know, the government has the data. But you can't. And besides, you know, what was the price of broccoli last year? Who knows? I care about um, but you can look at a, a, a chart of oil and see oil going parabolic and it's a big piece of everyone's life. I think they break oil. I and mean, that's the thing that breaks that forces them to stop printing. And uh, I think they're going to break oil and they're going to keep pushing until they break it. And since I feel pretty good that in the next four years they'll break it, I want to be the longest thing they're going to break. And when I say break, I mean they're going to shoot it into outer space. <laughs> yeah. So the, if you look at the oil curve, the front, out, off, front end sold off violently over the past week. Uh, I believe actually some parts of the longer end of the curve, which you you uh, own a lot of, actually went up. Uh, but I, do I understand? I saw you on Twitter that you actually took a little bit of a nibble on the front end, uh, which went from like you know eighty five to sixty. Can you tell us about that? And just you know, to what degree do you uh, put value in the curve? I thought that typically a curve in backwardation uh, is a very bullish sign, whereas in contango is is more of a bearish sign. Yeah, they, they say it's a bullish sign versus a bearish sign. I've looked at a lot of studies on the oil curve and it really has very little predictive value, which is kind of funny. Um, you know, I'd say the oil curve is more about the producers hedging in a market out a few years that's less liquid. And so they just hold the curve down. And, you know, the, the, the airlines, the truckers, the natural purchasers of petroleum, they're not out there hedging themselves. So 
it's just a shape of uh, what people are doing. It has nothing, it's not predictive is what I'm saying. Uh, you know, I was buying the back of the curve because I was buying, I bought my, I bought 20, 25 oil futures at 52 when uh, the front of the curve was uh, over 70. Uh, it was like 75 or so six months ago. And so I said, I'm buying this thing really cheap. And, you know, there's a $20 backwardation to it, probably $25 backwardation. And, you know, the, the back of the curve started moving up a few weeks ago, which is good. It got into the low 60s. Now it's in the high 50s. But the uh, front of the curve collapsed. And so I said, not, I, I, I'm fine to have some front of the curve. It's not really what I'm dying to own. But, you know, there's still some backwardation. And so when it, it, but it's liquid. So when it, when it crashed, I bought a bunch of those at about 66. I'm break-even-ish now, you know, up a little bit. I average down a little. Uh, but I assume that as uh, Biden stops dumping and OPEC figures out their plan and you know, everyone realizes that Omicron's kind of a hoax, I, I think the front of the curve will back up into the 70s and 80s. And if not, you know, with the backwardation, I'm going to pick up a little bit of roll yield. I'll just roll it down the curve until you have a recovery. I mean, maybe I'm risking five, 10 bucks here to make 20. Maybe I'll stay with it longer. We'll just see. I mean, I don't want to be all oil futures. So, you know, you can't just max it completely, but it looks like a nice little strategic spot to take a stab at it. And so I, I bought some front of the curve and I haven't owned any front of the curve at all. And then what about the U.S. oil fund? Uh, that's an uh, ETF that owns uh, futures of the curve. Uh, historically, the USO, the, the ticker has done very poorly because a lot of times the curve was in contango and they had all these fees. And of course, USO got absolutely clobbered when oil went negative in, in 2020. Not a, lot, not, a lot, you know, not a lot of people knew that it could go negative, but now we all know. Uh, I understand, uh, you know, uh, what, what is your thought on USO? I, I think I, I saw you say that uh, the vol of USO was, was quite high. Were you like trying to sell some insurance on both ways of that? Or what are your thoughts on there? So USO, it's a funny product. It owns a bunch of uh, spots on the curve. Um, it, it picks up a little bit of roll yield right now, which is probably the first time in a long time it's picked up some roll yield. Uh, no, vol spiked. It was the, the highest vol since uh, oil went negative. I mean, it really spiked yesterday. And so I, I sold some puts. I don't mind owning it. I mean, it's just another way to express my oil view. It's, you know, if oil's at 66, I want to own some more. If that's you know, 60 or 58, where we're getting assigned, like, I'll own some more. So it's a way to basically ladder into a trade. And if not, I'll pick up some yield. I, I like doing this when things overshoot. Uh, you know, implied volatility goes up and you get paid too much to sell it. And I sell it. I, I think they paid me like 15% at the money for like six weeks or something. It, it seemed wrong. And if I have to own more oil, <laughs> I'm not going to be upset. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Copy it. It's really interesting that uh, so much of your holdings are actually directional, you know, long delta of oil, betting that the price of oil goes up rather than any specific companies because uh, your research service you recently launched, uh, Ketum, Copy's event driven monitor, that is extremely specific uh, on all sorts of special transactions and conversions and CEOs being fired and buying back the stock and short interest being high, all sorts of very microeconomic, very fundamental company specific uh, things that are, you know, completely opposite that than macro. Uh, can you can you tell us you know, what it what it's like having more of a macro position now? Uh, you know, hist even though historically you've been an extremely you know, company specific investor. So I, I do both. Okay, I do two things. Uh, actually, I do three things. Uh, I do small cap uh, growth uh, value names, but uh, there's nothing that's cheap anymore. I remember 20 years ago, I was buying companies that are growing really fast, and I was paying you know, five times earnings and the earnings were growing 50, hundred percent a year. It was great. I mean, now, I mean, something growing 50% a year, it probably trades at like 20, 30 times revenue. There might even be any profits. Like it, it's just not the a world worth opportunity in my mind. Um, I've done a lot of what I call inflection investing. This is uh, take a macro view of something, usually something that's been beaten down and very unloved, uh, like energy. And you catch the inflection where it goes from, you know, absolutely hated. It usually goes full cycle to loved and then back to hated all over like a five, 10 year period. And I do that over and over. This is, I don't know, my fifth energy cycle now. You know, it just keeps repeating. Um, I do a lot of this sort of stuff. But I also uh, do a lot of event-driven trading. I have a service, like you mentioned, uh, Kedem. Uh, go to kedm.com. Uh, we have a free trial. I recommend everyone take it. Uh, but we're tracking over 20 event-driven uh, strategies. These are uh, mainly corporate events, but also fun flow events. What we're tracking, you know, 
spinoffs, privatizations, demutualizations, bankruptcy exits, uh, CEO change, and all sorts of things that, because when you look at the world, um, anything that goes in a linear fashion gets modeled out. And there's a lot of people watching this and they're, they're just looking at a situation, they're modeling it and trying to guess, you know, what, what's happening next quarter, next year, whatever it is, but they can do it with a linear progression. They usually get pretty accurate. Uh, the, the opportunity I think is in stuff that's really hard to model where there's a lot of quarterly volatility or year to year volatility, cyclical businesses, and these things get modeled poorly. But particularly, they get modeled poorly when there's uh, corporate actions going on. There is no model. You know, the spinoff, they'll give you a pro forma, but there's so many moving pieces. And even the pro formas don't usually work. There's added costs, there's savings. There's, there's so many different things that when you look at the model, the, the range of outcomes is so wide that you have an opportunity. Plus, you have a lot of, uh, given, given the way that the market's evolved, a lot of the shares are owned by non-economic owners. You know, an ETF just owns shares. Uh, if there's a spinoff, the ETF just sells the shares. They don't look at the value. They don't say this is cheap. Let's hold it. They just say it's not part of my basket. Buy. And so guys like me take the other side of it. And you have a couple day window where you can create a lot of value. If you've built a model and you know what you think it's worth. And you know sometimes the ETF dumps it to a price that's insane. And sometimes the ETF uh, doesn't. And but there's a whole lot of opportunity. And that's where I'm finding opportunity these days is these sort of situations that aren't linear, that really uh, are corporate events. I mean, let's talk about CEO change. I mean, usually what you see happen is uh, CEO changes and the company goes off in a different direction. Sometimes the new guy's good and it goes in a better direction. Sometimes the new guy sucks and it goes in a worse direction. Going in a different direction that can't be modeled. And usually a new CEO wants to make his mark. He wants to show that he's doing something to earn his stock options. He usually gets stock options the day he joins. So... He's very incentivized to do something that makes the stock go up. And, you know, we look at the situations where you have a company that struggled for a long time and, you know, the board of directors didn't really want to have any tough love there and fix the problem. And eventually they got so shitty that they fired the guy. They brought in a new guy and the new guy starts uh, fixing things. Usually the first thing he does, though, is blame everything on the old guy and he sets expectations super low. And that's when we come in. And so you have a situation where a company's been hurting, it's been decaying. And the new guy comes in and then it goes like that. It just drops off the wall and everyone says, oh, this thing is it's a lost cause. And you know, you can't, you just, everyone just models it as just decaying. And the new guy comes in and sometimes it gets better. Sometimes it is a lost cause. But these are the sort of situations that create uh, opportunity. And that's why we created a, a service to track this stuff, mainly because I want the data myself. Yeah. And I, I should say about uh, when you're saying a CEO leaving, it's, Probably not an example like Twitter, where Jack Dorsey recently left. It's a company that most people have never heard of, and therefore it's not going to be priced in, and it will not be uh, economic. Uh, just to, to give people an example watching this, as an example of how specific and in the weeds your research is, uh, do you want to talk to us about uh, a Silvano printer paper? Yeah, sure. So there's a, I mean, there's a position we, we, we own some. Uh, international paper... Uh, had an uncoded free sheet business that's a printer paper. It's a business that's uh, slowly disappearing because no one prints anymore, but it's still a massive business globally. And international paper spun it off because they couldn't sell it to anyone. And you know it was holding back their overall growth numbers because this business is shrinking. They spun it off, it's an unsexy business. It's not really an attractive business, but they're one of the low cost players globally in what in what is a shrinking business. And it, it, it collapsed. It started trading in the mid-30s. It dropped all the way to 24. I mean, we bought a lot of it at 24. Uh, we were paying about three times cash flow for this thing. And yeah, it shrinks a few percent a year. But, you know, they're a low-cost guy. And right now there's a shortage of printer paper because a lot of factories converted to corrugated because of everyone's getting Amazon po back boxes. And so there's kind of a shortage of printer paper globally. These guys are making good money. You know, uh, we, we track cluster insider buys. That's another, uh, you know, strategy. You know, if insiders like something, we usually like it. We've got a cluster buy. Multiple insiders stepped up and bought stock. I mean, here we are at 31. I paid 24 uh, six weeks ago, eight weeks ago. I mean, it's a nice quick return. I think it's probably going to the 40s. But I wouldn't have known about this. I mean, it's a small-ish company. I wouldn't have known about this thing if we weren't uh, tracking it at Kevin. Uh, you know, and then... We just, I put it on my screen and it kept dropping every day because everyone, I mean, international paper is mostly owned by index funds. 
I don't know anyone who wakes up in the morning and says, let's put some of this in my IRA, you know? So um, the index funds had this thing they weren't allowed to own. And there's no one who wakes up in the morning and says, I need to buy some uncoded free sheet for my IRA. So there's no bid, you know? It's, it's very different. You, you mentioned uh, Jack Dorsey at Twitter. I think that's uh, worth looking at. You know, I think it's universally agreed that, you know, Jack is a visionary, but he's also a little bit insane. Uh, he's had two companies. He tried to move off to Africa. Uh, I don't think he's ran Twitter very well. Uh, the monetization's always been a disaster. I mean, it's a decade on and they still don't have an edit button. Like, <laughs> this is low-hanging fruit that I think they could uh, use for the user experience. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a tech guy, but I feel like I could run this thing better. Uh, is the new guy the right guy to fix the problem? I, I don't really know. I think an outsider, the stock would be at 70 instead of 42 right now. But I know the new guy is going to try to put his mark on what's happening. He's going to try to have some early victories and show the world how smart he is. And he's definitely going to set the company on a different direction because I think it was kind of universally agreed to go in the wrong direction. I mean, that's how they got activists in the first place. So, you know, it's a situation where there's going to be a change of direction. It's going to be difficult to model. We don't really know what this new guy's plan is. He hasn't really you know, told anyone yet. Um, it's worth watching. I mean, it's, it's a great business with a 30 billion EV. And, I mean, if they could just unfuck it slightly, it's going to be a hundred billion EV. So, you know, it's worth watching and uh, we'll see where it goes. But these are sort of situations that create opportunity in my view. Yeah. So that's EV enterprise value, which is equity value plus the debt. But I, in my head, when I heard that, I also thought electric vehicle, uh, we've seen a lot of uh, em emissions, let's say, from uh, you know, new IPOs and, and SPAC merge, reverse mergers of companies that have uh, you know, electric vehicle companies. And they're very good at making promises, very good at marketing, but not so good at making cars or making money. Uh, what, can, you know, can you tell us your outlook on the sector? And then also, you know, if someone would have your view, they might be inclined to short them. But tell us why, why you're hesitant to do that. Well, I don't shorten Project Zimbabwe. Um, the market only goes up. It just goes up at different speeds. And there'll be sh very short, sharp uh, declines. And some people are really good at timing that. I don't think I am. So uh, it's just really hard to short. Uh, it's painful. I've tried it a few times over the last uh, year and regretted it immediately. It's, it's, it's awful. So I, I don't think people should be shorting these things. At the same time, you know, uh, like Rivian, uh, they haven't produced any trucks yet. It's worth uh, $100 billion. It makes no sense. Uh, Tesla, I mean, it makes no sense. But I mean, Tesla made no sense and then it 20 baggered. Like, yeah. That's why they short this stuff. So, look, um, there's a lot of things that go in the too hard pile when uh, I'm investing. I try to go into situations where I have massive edge. You know, if I could buy an uh, uncoded free sheet at three times cash flow and I know that they're going to delever for a bit and then give me a fat dividend or a buyback or something else, that's a layup. Uh, guessing the right price of Tesla, I mean, I, I tried that. I sucked at it. <laughs> it's not for me. I, I know it's not for me. And uh, I'm going to stay out of stuff that I'm not very good at and focus on the stuff that I'm good at. Mm. So let's talk about something uh, where you think you do have a massive edge, and that is uranium. Uh, you had an interview uh, uh, with you know my my old colleague and friend uh, at Real Vision uh, in the summer, or maybe it was late spring, where he asked you about uranium. Uh, CCJ was just probably peeking its head out of uh, you know the twenties or wherever, and you were like, ah, oh, that uranium thing. Uh, uranium. It's better to buy uranium at fifty than thirty. Like I've, people have been telling me that story for ten years. I'll believe it when I see it. However, now. It's completely different. You are foaming at the mouth bullish on uranium. What's changed? What's your outlook? Tell us, share with us your view. So I've been hearing this uranium story for years and years. It went nowhere. Uh, I kind of got coaxed into it in the fall of 19. I tossed it all in 20 early on because the world kind of crashed and I wanted capital. Um, look, uranium is a commodity. Uh, the marginal cost to produce uh, the stuff is in the 70s, let's call it. Um, it's consistently traded in the 20s and 30s for the better part of the decade. Um, it's been a, just a terrible place because there's too much of it and it was oversupplied and uh, th there was no catalyst. You know, it was cheap, but these mines kept producing it at a loss and eventually they went bankrupt. That's what happens when you produce it at a loss. They shut the mines. And, it, you know, in a commodity industry, it's a very long cycle to heal. And so now uh, we're in a situation where the world produced about 125 million pounds, about 
25 million pounds of secondary resource, so let's call it 150. These are very round numbers. Um, the world needs about 180 going on 185 next year. So let's say there's about 30, 35 million uh, deficit. And so we're using up the above ground stockpiles. And this has been going on now for three years, a similar deficit. We've used up about 100 million pounds. Um, what really changed in my mind is that this entity called Sprott came out there and it started uh, issuing shares to uh, purchase uranium. And they've already bought over 20 million pounds. So it's almost like a full year worth of global consumption. It all happened in about three months. And so the day Uranium uh, Sprott Fiscal Trust uh, started uh, issuing shares, I kind of watched it. I was curious. And by about day three, I said, okay, this thing is actually going to absorb a lot of, a lot of uranium. And uh, I bought a lot of it uh, when uh, uranium was around 32. Uh, now I went from a couple, maybe 50, 100 bips of uranium. I owned a little Sprott before. Uh, I, went, I went to uh, position max, which is 35% uh, of my fund in about three days. I, I bought uh, Sprott, I bought uh, Kazatomprom, the world's largest producer. I bought a little bit of Canica, even though it's a turd. Um, you know, I, I bought a couple of the little, uh, the smaller juniors. I don't want to name them because I'm not proud I own them, but you know, they, they've got a lot. <laughs> but um, mostly I just bought uh, Sprott and, um, and I bought a lot of Kazatomprom. And it, it's been, it's done very well for me. They've absorbed 20 million pounds. I don't know when or how. I just know that if you go out there and you keep buying physical and the world keeps consuming about three million pounds a month, eventually you're gonna run out of uh, uranium and the price will go up from you know, half the marginal cost of production. I bought it in the low thirties. It'll go to the marginal cost of production and then it's gonna go past the marginal cost of production because if you wanna restart some of these mines and get back to an equilibrium where the world's producing 185 million pounds, you need uh, a profit motive. You need the price to go well past, uh, let's call it 70, so that uh, a bank will fund you and give you the capital you need to turn your mind back on. I mean, there's plenty of uh, deposits in this world. There's plenty of uh, mines that are shuttered that can be brought back online, but you need a profit motive and you need uh, some stability of price for a long period of time so that people finally go ahead and do it, which is why commodities often overshoot to the upside and the downside. They rarely spend a lot of time in the middle. They're usually way too high, in which case a ton of supply comes, or way too low. And you know, I've, <laughs> made a career out of just playing the cycle in different commodities. So this is my second uranium cycle. And I uh, kind of have a clue of how this is going to go because I was in the last cycle. It was very good to me. Um, you know, I think one thing is worth looking at is there was an entity called Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And last year I noticed that it was uh, chomping away at Bitcoins. And uh, I, I saw that the rate was buying them started accelerating. And I saw... Uh, point on the chart that I thought I was risking a couple hundred dollars to see what would happen. And at 9,200, I bought a lot of Grayscale, a lot. And um, it, it kind of exploded higher to 12,000. 12, it pulled back to 98, all my friends sold. It stayed between 10,000 and uh, 12,000 for about four months. And it just kept chomp, 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 chomp. And then one day they ran out of Bitcoins that people wanted to sell at 12,000. And it basically went from... 12 to 60 in like three months. And it was really good to me. I have a lot of it. Um, and I think it's very much the same with what's happening with uh, Sprout. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's chomping away at this and eventually you're gonna run out of supply. But unlike Bitcoin, you know, no one actually needs Bitcoin. Um, it, it's just, no, no one needs it. Um, I know you guys might disagree, but that's my view. Uh, but if you have a power plant, you really need uranium. Without uranium, you have a paperweight. Uh, you know, it's like uh, GameStop, you know, it went straight up, it was a short squeeze, but eventually people sold because they had profits, they sold it, then it went down. Um, with, with uranium, if the price goes to 500 or 1,000 and a power plant still needs it, they still need it. And someone's going to have to pay for that. It's going to be, you know, the government or rate payers or, you know, someone's going to have to pay for it, but without uranium, you don't have a power plant. And so I have a feeling that once the price starts moving, it's going to be very explosive because a lot of these utilities are going to chase each other and chase after the, the pounds because it's going to be a shortage. It's, it's, it's kind of inevitable, you know? If you have 30 million more demand than supply, eventually it's going to fix itself. And so I really like this trade. Uh, it's, it's my biggest possession. Uh, you know, I, I tend to run a very concentrated buck. I look at these sort of idiosyncratic trades. I don't 
have to care too much what the stock market's doing. You know, it's, it's, it's a better way, I think, to invest. You know, if the stock market goes up, I don't know if uranium goes up. If the stock market goes down, I don't know if uranium goes down. It just does its own funny thing. So I, I tend to like sectors like that, and I have a lot of uranium. And so far, it's been good to me. Can you uh, just walk us through China? Um, what's your outlook there? We're seeing a lot of reverberations in the credit market. A lot of uh, debt is being called in. And yet we haven't seen uh, the Chinese yuan revalue as many macro investors had anticipated. Uh, why do you think that is? And are you looking to buy some dips? You know, Alibaba is now more than cut in half from its all-time highs. Oh, I, I wouldn't touch that shit. I think it's going to zero. Um, no, I, I, look, I'm no China expert, okay? Um, Xi is obviously out there trying to do something. Uh, I, I don't know what his plan is. I don't think anyone knows what his plan is. It could just be he has no plan. <laughs> but um, he, he's kind of taken a hatchet to a lot of the national champion companies. He's sacked CEOs. He's, you know... Killed some CEOs. Uh, you know, it's 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 kind of crazy what's going on there. You know, it's kind of a shitty time to be a billionaire in China. And um, I don't really know what the plan is. You know, Evergrande is the first you know controlled de- detonation of a company, and all of this is kind of hurting their uh, economy. Um, you know, obviously there's uh, credit ramifications, which is you know what uh, people are looking at right now and looking at the banking system. But what's happening with uh, the renminbi is that uh, corporates in uh, China are overlevered and they're starting to sell off international assets and uh, repatriate the money and uh, pay down their debts. I mean, we saw the same thing in uh, Japan. The Japanese went on this crazy buying spree and they're buying hotels all over the place and trophy assets. And then over 20 years, they started selling down those assets to pay down debts. And... As you uh, repatriate those funds, it puts a bid under your currency. And that's what we're seeing with the renminbi. And, you know, that bid obviously is hurting the economy uh, there. And then globally, it's exporting deflation. And so um, eventually, China could either go the route of uh, Japan and watch the, I mean, the yen appreciated for 20-something years until Abe stepped in and said, no, this is dumb. Uh, I don't don't know why they took that pain for 20 years, but they did. you know, the Chinese could take the pain or they could be pragmatic uh, and try to find a middle route. They could just like one day show up and devalue. And given the way Xi's been acting lately, he's probably going to be something totally out of left field. But um, no, I mean, until then, it's putting a bid under uh, the, you know, the, 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 their currency and it's exporting deflation globally. And it's just interesting to watch. I mean, I, I'm not putting a dollar of my money in there because it's lawless. I mean, I want to go to places that have rules. Even though, you know, if you put a chart of Alibaba with the revenue, the net income and the growth over the past 10 years, it would look very similar to like a Google, a Facebook. And yet, the, even even then, you still think it, it's a bagel? Well, no, I mean, I think the numbers at Google are correct. I think the numbers at Alibaba are fake. Like, they just make believe. Uh, I think they're, there's no possible way that those numbers are real. I mean, the question is how fake the numbers are and there's some disagreement. But I, I think, I mean, well, I, I feel pretty confident that those numbers are fake. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's talk about another stock that's been cut even more than Alibaba, which is Robinhood. This dropped on the scene a few months ago. And what an ugly, we can put a chart of it, what an ugly uh, birth into the stock market world it has had. Um, what, what's your outlook on the company, your long-term outlook on the company? And then I understand you're doing something a little bit idiosyncratic, uh, which the opportunity to do it may have already passed. Well, so Robinhood... Um... Look, I think it's probably not worth what it's trading at. It's at twenty-four dollars right now, as we're, as we're speaking. It's probably worth like a couple dollars. It might be worth zero. Um, you know, I think payment for order flow will eventually go away. Uh, there's too many regulators looking at it, and you know, Robinhood's also done too many dumb things to their customers over the last couple of years. And I assume there'll be fines and penalties and new regulations put in place. But at the same time, you know, it's it's a company. It's it, 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 to me, um, I would never invest in this thing, but you know there are idiosyncratic fund flow situations that are interesting because you know over a big data set, there's opportunities. And so one of the things we track at Ketum is uh, unlocks. And an unlock, just, just for people who don't know, when you IPO a company, or in the case of Robinhood, they direct lifted it, um, a certain number of shares uh, start trading on day one, 
And then over certain periods of time, uh, there is what you call an unlock, where restricted shares are allowed to be traded. And there's a lot of early investors in Robinhood, there's a lot of employees, and I think they'd rather turn their shares into something that's real. And so they're gonna sell their shares and then go buy toys or you know, from some better investments. Um, and so um, you, know, you have a situation where there's an unlock, it's well telegraphed, you have to read the proxy, it's there. I mean, no one reads it because it's a 500 page document, it's kind of boring. Uh, we, we have someone that reads it for us. Uh, we, we keep track of this. And so in the case of Robinhood, almost 500 million shares came free trading. Uh, they started free trading yesterday. And it was pretty obvious that it was going to put a lot of pressure on the stock. And the, the stock's down from the mid-30s to it opened yesterday at 25. Uh, and if you look at this, if you short these things about 30 days before the unlock, especially the ones that are below the IPO price, especially the ones where... Uh, the, the number of shares unlocking as a percentage of the float is disproportionately high, like uh, with Robinhood, is pretty good money to be made. And in this case, you know, the stock dropped almost a third uh, in those 30 days, which, you know, it's textbook, you know, alpha. It's just pure money in a way. Uh, what was also surprising is that these things tend to get uh, hedged out. I mean, it's, it's illegal to do swaps, but everyone's kind of doing it. Um, and so when you get to the unlock day, they usually stop going down. And I don't know why that is, it just is. And so uh, yesterday with uh, implied volatility well over 100, uh, I wrote some puts. It's not a huge position, but I wrote some puts because the odds say this, it, does, it stops going down. And uh, at 100 vols or 120 vols, if it goes down, I can roll the puts and it's hard to really lose much money, especially given what I got paid. As long as there's no event risk and there's no earnings, I mean, they passed earnings. So, I mean, you, you, you have a trade, first you short it, and then you write some puts after the unlocking. This is why I built Kevin so I keep track of this. We're doing this across, you know, lots of securities. Mm. But, you know, I thought it was funny. I threw that out on Twitter because I thought people would laugh. And they, they mostly did because anyone who knows me knows what I think of Robinhood. And so the fact that I'm taking a, a long biased view, I mean, they thought it was funny. I thought it was funny. <laughs> but I'm up on the train already. It's good. <laughs> you know, Cuppy, I, I feel like as soon as I get familiar with your, your sense of uh, your style of investing, you're like, oh, no, I'm doing something completely different. And I think that's because you really are very proficient in these three styles of investing that you have. What advice would you give to someone who's newer in the investment world? Uh, do you, can you learn all three at the same time, or do you have to master one before you move on to the other ones? Well, I don't think I'd change that much. I mean, in the end, uh, investing is you buy something for less than it's worth, and you sell it when it goes to what it's worth. It's it's not rocket science. I mean, it's more about how to find those opportunities. And that, and that goes in cycles, okay? You know, you could have moments in time where growth is great. You have moments in time where, you know, the opportunities are in depressed commodities. Like last year, where I was buying oil and gas stocks. You know, it can, you, you can find opportunities in all sorts of different places. I mean, the hard thing is knowing where to go fishing. You know, you, you fish where the fish are. But, um, just knowing where to go looking and also knowing when to just hold on to a bunch of cash and do nothing because it's not a good time to be putting the money to work. I and mean, as we talked about earlier, the next couple of months, j is against you. G is kind of against you. You know, commodities are slowing down because China's slowing down. Um, you know, fiscal's against you because the Democrats are all having a civil war rather than passing anything. But you have all these things against you, you know, the, the seasonals are against you in that it's going to be winter and... You know, COVID is a seasonal disease. Uh, you know, it's a flu. It's, uh, so you have all these things kind of against uh, the markets. Probably not a good time to buy. At some point in a few months, everyone will be freaking out. And that's when you want to buy it again. Um, and it's, it's good to sit on cash and wait and be patient. And I think that's the hardest thing to learn is when just to be patient. Uh, you know, because you're paid to allocate capital into stuff. And it's really hard to uh, sit there and do nothing. That, 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 that's like the best lesson, whether it's because you have a trade and it's working. You know, I've seen so many people who have a winning trade and they overtrade it. You know, look, I got into Bitcoin the same time a bunch of my friends did. I got in at 9,200. I sold mine at 58K. I didn't trade it once. I just wrote it. I have friends, you know, I made myself, what is it, 50,000 uh, points. I have friends who picked 5,000 points out of it or... You know, they buy it, they sell it, they, they, they buy a dip and they missed it, they link it back on. Like, it's just a dumb way to, to trade. I mean, put it on and ride it if you believe in it. And uh, I see people over trade. I also see people in stuff they shouldn't be in because they're bored. 
it's, 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 it, I think that's the hardest thing, and that's 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 where I've grown the most. I think. What are so? What are those things? What What are those things where you see people they're in things that they just shouldn't be in, either for because you think it's a bad investment or it requires such focus and attention that you you don't think that a lot of investors have. Well, no, I think people. There's a lot of people right now in horribly overvalued stocks because they've gone up for five years or ten years, and eventually they stop going up and. Um, you know, it, it boggles the mind. There's people in companies that have no revenue that are in the tens of billions. And, you know, these things may never have revenue, much less profits. Like, it, it, I don't understand what a lot of these people own. And yet, you know, it's a super liquid security where they can cash out at a moment's notice. And yet they still own it. It's got greater fool theory. And that goes for a while. And then it doesn't. And I just see a lot of people doing things that don't make any sense to me. I mean, maybe it makes sense to them. I don't know. But, um, yeah, I, just, I see people making, you know, unforced errors all over the place in the screen. And uh, I try to avoid that. doesn't mean I'm not making mistakes everywhere, but you know, I, I try to grow. But in terms of your first question, you know, how to find a stock that's going to go up five times. I mean, that's easy. Uh, you know, if you look under enough rocks, you'll find plenty of them. It, the question is when to buy them, how to own them, uh, you know, you know, how to size them, when to get out, so what are the risks? Like, that's the stuff that's harder. Finding five bags is easy. I mean, we've talked about a bunch of them already on this show. Um, mm-hmm. And some won't work, but, you know, the key when you're looking for five bags is that you're going to get some wrong and you don't want to lose any money either. And that's the other thing that's taken me a long time to learn is how do you uh, find something with a lot of upside where when you get it wrong, you get your money back. Because, you know, when you run a, a concentrated book like I do, you know, you, you, you're not allowed a lot of mistakes. You know, a down 50 means you need to double your money to get your money back. And, you know, when you have five names, you can get one wrong in a year. But, you know, you have two down 50s and your year's going to suck. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the key is when you get it wrong, you know, you make lose 10% or something. It's okay. And that, that's been the harder thing to figure out. I used to go further out on the risk curve. And now I try not to go out on the risk curve. You know, let's go all the way back to uranium. I own a Sprott Fiscal Uranium because when uranium was oversupplied by 30, 40 million pounds a year, uh, the price of uranium was 25. Now that uranium has a deficit, you know, the, I bought mine at 30. I felt like I was risking about five bucks. And, um, you know, compared to where it was trading when the news was terrible and the, the market was terrible, you know, so I'm, I'm taking a small little risk. I mean, uranium will be it'll be around next year and the year after versus, you know, some little 50 cent stock. I mean, yeah, maybe it can go to $10, but maybe they'll do a dilutive offering at a nickel and, you know, you lose the whole company or maybe you miss a permit or maybe whatever country it's in has a revolution or a flood or, you know, there's so many things that go wrong with these things. Like, that's why, I, you know, I could go for more torque, but there's plenty of torque in, torque in Sprott, so why go for the torque? And I think that's the hardest thing for me to learn is, you know, you don't have to go full throttle all the time. Sometimes going in first gear is just fine because if I'm right about uranium, I'd still be a 10-bagger. And do you expect it to be a 10-bagger? You know, if you look at the price of uranium uh, over the past 20 years, what was it, 2006, 2008, it just had a huge run that was incredible. Like, it was a straight line up. Um, it was so so fast and, and so such a vicious, you know, increase. Are you expecting the same sort of you know, uh, extreme rise or is it, do you think it could be more muted? I think this one will be uh, more extreme than last time. I mean, last time uh, uranium was oversupplied. The, the entire way up, there was actually a surplus. Uh, the issue was that there had been some force majeure uh, situations and some utilities panicked and they paid any price just because they wanted to secure supply. At, at a time where a bunch of hedge funds and, you know, broker dealers like, Look, when Lehman went bankrupt, it owned uranium. You know, there's a bunch of random people out there that shouldn't have owned uranium that are buying uranium. And so that all those guys all front ran the utilities and panicked the utilities. Here, the same thing is going to happen again. You're going to see a bunch of hedge funds buying uranium. You're going to see Sprott buying uranium. But now there's a deficit. And, you know, if you do the math on this, and I've done the math on this, um, you get to 2030 and you take how many pounds you expect to be produced in the next uh, eight years. You take how many pounds you expect to be consumed because you know how many power plants are getting built. And you know, there's a little bit of variability. You know, some power plants are supposed to get uh, you know, decommissioned. Maybe they'll get extended. Maybe you know, some power plants will miss their deadlines to you know, 
building a power plant, you know, they're two years behind schedule, whatever. But in the very big picture, you're looking at uh, about a 500 million pound deficit of uranium. Now that deficit will get fixed because some mines will have to get turned on. Um, you know, it's inevitable. So you're not going to have a 500 million deficit because, you know, nuclear is like 10% of the world's electricity. You're not going to have you know, these big power plants going dark. Uh, but these mines, from the day you decide to start it up, it takes two, three years to start it up. It's still going to be a deficit. It's inevitable. If Sprott's out there buying 20 million pounds a quarter, that deficit expands. You know, every time Sprott buys a million pounds, you, know, you go from 500, 501, 502. Uh, I mean, you could massively miss. You know, if, if a mine has an accident, it's offline for six months, you're going to miss. So you have this variability in, in, in the model, but I think you're going to have a really big problem. And uh, every pound that comes off the market, every day that goes on where uh, the price isn't 100 so that it incentivizes mines to restart, you're going to basically uh, have this uh, 500, let's just say that's the number, uh, get closer to getting crystallized in, in a way. You know, if, if uranium is 100 tomorrow and they restarted MacArthur River, maybe, you know, the, the number is 400, 300, the deficit. So I just think it's going to overshoot dramatically. Um, it's just math. It's, just, it's more a question of when than if. And I think one of the problems, and you see this in uh, uh, Sprott, you know, the, 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 it, it trades around, it's volatile, it trades on most recent news. Or, you know, there's so many people that are trying to look at what's happening in the price of uranium and saying, you know, why did this happen? Why did that happen? Oh, let's go sell some, let's go buy some. And it's like me with the grayscale. I just sit there and it, it, it's inevitable. So let's just let it happen. And if it takes... You know, two years, then it takes two years. You know, I've been in it three months. <laughs> I'm not, you know, it's, it's not burning a hole in my portfolio yet. Copy, mm-hmm. uh, do you view BITO, the Bitcoin ETF that was just launched in the US, as a grayscale Bitcoin trust moment where it allows, it's a, allows a, it's a conduit between institutional investors who want to invest who previously could not do so? Uh, and if you don't view it that like that, uh, why not? That's the one that owns futures? Yes. I just think there's enough. Uh, ways for institutional investors to invest right now that if someone wants exposure to Bitcoin, they're going to get exposure to Bitcoin. Um, you know, when I was buying Grayscale last year, there was no other way. I mean, I, I run a hedge fund. I have a brokerage account. I, I have no other flexibility. There's, actually, I own some futures also. Um, but um, there's no real viable way. I mean, now I think there's enough conduits. It, it, yeah, it's sort of the same. I mean, it's going to Anything that takes coins off the market is going to increase the price, and anything that you know adds coins to the market will decrease the price. It's just supply and demand. But I just don't think it's going to be as meaningful. Um, and I have no position in anything Bitcoin. Any, you know, I'm kind of out. I sold 58, and I have zero regrets. I mean, it's been the same price for six months. Uh, you know, I'll probably come back to it at some point in my life. But uh, you know, it, it just seems like kind of dead money to me for a while. So, Cuppy, uh, at Praetorian Capital, your hedge fund, you target, I believe, uh, trailing three-year returns, which means that you can take a 20% hit in a month, and investors understand, as long as you focus on the long-term performance. You're also the CEO CEO of Mongolian Growth Corp, a company uh, that has a lot of holdings, uh, and that, you know, that company is publicly traded. So, do you, do you put your more sort of safer stocks uh, in Mongolian Growth Corp? Uh, and put the r- more riskier positions in, in Praetorian, or uh, do you sort of you, you view both of them and you, you, you share positions between them both? So they're, they're two different things, okay? My hedge fund, it's a, it's a hedge fund for wealthy, sophisticated investors. Uh, and, you know, we're going to do things that hedge funds are supposed to do. Uh, it's going to be volatile, it's, it's meant to be volatile. Um, you know, it's meant to be risky in a way. Uh, and I think people going into it expect that sort of volatility because hopefully there's uh, offsetting upside. Um, Mobility Growth Group is uh, an entity I, I launched in 2011, uh, and it was designed to invest in Mongolian real estate. At the time, Mongolia was the fastest growing economy in the world. Uh, it's since been a 10-year economic crisis, uh, mostly self-inflicted by the government there. And uh, we've, uh, over time, decided to pivot the business. Uh, we're going to keep our core Mongolia exposure, our team. Uh, hopefully, Mongolia one day recovers. Um, but we've uh, been uh, selling off non-core assets and uh, reinvesting. Uh, you know, the thing I know best is public securities. We've done a lot of investing in public securities. 
But there's uh, certain regulatory and tax reasons why we can't uh, go beyond a certain threshold in public securities. And we're really looking to uh, treat uh, MGG, and, and the ticker symbol is YAK in Canada, Y-A-K, or MNGGF in the U.S. We're really looking to treat this like a, a merchant bank. Um, and merchant banks mean a lot of things to a lot of people. But for us, it means buying control stakes in various uh, public and private businesses, helping them uh, access capital, which is something, you know, obviously we, we have a lot of experience with. And, you know, hopefully adding value to these businesses uh, through our connections and through, you know, our own experiences as investors. And, um, you know, we, we see a way to kind of uh, bridge uh, sort of a gap. You know, a hedge fund can't do private, well, I guess it can, but mine doesn't. You know, hedge fund's not there to take control positions because you have liquidity constraints. Uh, you know, investors want their money back and you can't own, you know, 50% of a company, you'll never get out. Whereas with a permanent capital vehicle, we can. And so we're looking to take uh, MGG in a very different direction and you know, use my investing skills. And, you know, I have a team of people who I tend to think are pretty smart. Uh, and we intend to hopefully create some value. Our, we're also going to look to launch some businesses internally. And Ketum, which we talked about earlier, is, is owned by MGG. And it's a you know, nice revenue stream, uh, even though it's only a five-month-old business in terms of uh, modernization. But it produces enough revenue to you know, keep the lights on and you know, give us uh, the resources we need to keep pushing forward. Um, you know, for people who are interested in MGG, if you look at our Q3 uh, MDNA, it really does uh, show uh, the changes that have been made over the last few years to business. And you should read my shareholder letter. I kind of detail my plan and where I'm looking to go with this. And, you know, I should say that I eat my own cooking. Uh, I order of this company and now I put out almost $5 million, million into it. So um, I really do want it to work. <laughs> it's been a pretty uh, sad, depressing experience for a decade. And, you know, for the first time in a very long time, things are looking up. And that's why we're starting to talk about it a bit. And, you know, like I said, I own about a quarter of it. Uh, our CFO, she owns uh, almost 5% of it. You know, the board owns a bunch. Like, we're here working for ourselves. And, you know, you guys can come along for the ride if you want. Yeah, so, Kapi, what you're going to say is that uh, what we are saying is it's not going to be a Moderna-like sh- uh, share sale chart. <laughs> no, I've never sold a share. You can look at okay. what they're buying. Uh, actually, you probably should. Uh, you know, I bought uh, millions of shares in the open market, as did my CFO. <laughs> there were many uh, months when we were the only ones buying between us and the buyback. And you know, we bought back over 20% of the shares outstanding uh, from the peak. Uh, you know, between it was myself, uh, Jen, and the buyback, we were basically most of the trading volume for years at a time when it really did look like we'd go bankrupt. <laughs> but no, we... we we soldiered on, we figured out how to create liquidity, and uh, for the first time in a very long time, we're actually in a really strong financial position. And we're in a position that we can actually kind of pivot the business and hopefully start to do really smart things as opposed to, you know, <laughs> you know, just move money around to make payroll, which is what we were doing for a very long time, and it was a really terrible experience. Yeah, well, I will say, Cuppy, uh, I've uh, read Kedem, and I have to say it is a wealth of information. So. Uh, anyone who's watching this who wants to do that sort of a very event-driven research where this company that no one's ever heard of is spinning off another company that no one's ever heard of, and you know, potentially there are lucrative opportunities, um, that I, I cannot think of a better research than uh, Cuppy's event-driven monitor. So, you know, hey, and I, I'm, yes. yeah. Um, but there's also, uh, look, we have a free trial, so it, you'd be a moron not to at least uh, take a look at it. You know, it's not for everyone. It's for, you know, sophisticated investors, but, uh, you know, I, Look, I've made millions of dollars out of the stuff that's flagged for me that I would totally have missed otherwise. So, you know, like our tagline is one idea should pay for, you know, your, your subscription. I mean, I have like multiple lifetime subscriptions I've created just in, you know, the last five months since we launched it. So, no, it's doing exactly what it's meant to do. And I'm really proud of it. I'm, I'm proud of the guys that work there that, uh, that, that produce it. I bet. Yeah, before I knew that you had a team, I thought it was just you. I'm just like, what is this guy he doesn't. He must not sleep because I mean it's very extensive. There, I must report on you know hundreds, if not thousands, of companies. Yeah, no, it's, it's really uh, detailed, uh, full of knowledge. I mean, I don't think there's any way that anyone can stay on top of all these situations. I, I know I can't, but uh, we try our best to flag the more interesting ones. And like I said, you know, we're kind of scratching the surface here still in terms of uh, all the uh, venture opportunities. But it's really changed my own investing. Uh, just because I'm not missing stuff anymore. 
It's, it's really yeah. great. Well, Cuppy, it's been fantastic uh, getting to interview you. You've been someone who's been on my wish list, uh, my interview wish list for a long time. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you everyone for watching. Hey, thanks for having me on. Really do appreciate it.